Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Alex Rice. I cover closed-end funds at Stiefel. This is my 18th Capital Link. I'm very glad to be back here. Uh, nice to see all the familiar faces again. Um, we have a wonderful panel today. Um, with me are Barry Nelson, uh, who's a partner at Advent Capital Management, uh, Larry Antonados, who is both a managing director and portfolio manager at Brookfield. Uh, we have Brian Cordes, who is a senior vice president at Conan Steers and handles their portfolio management group, and Jay Hatfield, the CEO of InfraCap. Um, our panel is titled uh, Alternative Income Generation, and I think it's an extraordinarily important uh, panel to have. Um, we have fantastic experience here on the podium. Uh, I feel like I've been given, you know, the keys to a sports car. Uh, I want to see what this thing can do. Um, interest rates have obviously been very low for a while. This has been a theme that we've all dealt with now for the better part of a decade. Um, and it seems to me that a natural byproduct of a very low yield environment is that income investors will be forced to seek alternatives to traditional income investments. Uh, those would have normally been you know, bonds and the like. Um, and so I'd like to introduce uh, Barry and Larry and Brian and Jay, who each have a, a tremendous amount of experience in alternative investments, um, and each just to give a little bit of background on their specific area of expertise and how they think uh, that benefits investors who are seeking income and are building their portfolio uh, for their retirement years and for the years where they actually use their investments to supplant their lifestyle. And so with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to Barry. All right, uh, thanks for that uh, powerful introduction, uh, Alex. Um, I'm always happy uh, to promote uh, my favorite asset class, uh, convertible securities. And uh, put very simply, um, convertibles are a niche, and uh, it's a $400 billion plus asset class, big enough to invest in, but uh, not big enough to be uh, the focus of the electronic media and convertibles uh, yield more than common stocks. Uh, they especially tend to yield more than the uh, growth companies that typically are the issuers of convertibles. And historically, convertibles have provided uh, returns that are indistinguishable uh, from common stocks. Uh, even in the wake of uh, years of a bull market now, uh, convertible total returns are almost up to the S&P, and when there's a bear market, uh, we'll be ahead. And in the closed-end uh, format, uh, this is a, uh, a great way to get uh, monthly income and to get a total return that it should be indistinguishable uh, from that of common stocks, yet taking uh, a lot less risk uh, than common stocks. Uh, I did um, uh, take the liberty of some slides, um, one of which um, gives um, the volatility shows that we have lower volatility than common stocks. Uh, we also, um, we have much less downside suffering uh, in bad markets. Uh, over time, relative to the S&P in up years, we've captured about 85%, and in down years, uh, suffered uh, something like 60% uh, of the downside. And again, the closed-end fund format, with monthly income, uh, it's ideal for retirees who need that income to pay their bills, plus convertibles are 
inherently a, a risk-averse um, asset class. And uh, as you get older, you don't have an awful lot of years left uh, to recover. So it certainly, um, um, it certainly feels good to have some downside uh, protection. I'm sorry if I've been too uh, verbose. Um, and with that, I'd like to turn it over to Larry. Um, at Brookfield, you know, infrastructure is a key component of what they do, and it is, a, as an alternative uh, category, it's one that has been gaining a lot of traction in recent years. And so, Larry, I'd love to hear your impressions on the asset class and how people are incorporating it. Sure. Uh, I'm Larry Antonatis. I'm a portfolio manager at Brookfield in our public securities group. I just want to start by giving you a brief background on Brookfield. We're one of the world's largest alternative asset managers. We are very specialized in that we're focused on real assets. Uh, we're principally investing in real estate and infrastructure, but we do that in multiple different ways. We invest both in equity and debt, and we invest in public securities as well as run a large platform of private equity and private debt funds. Those are typically 10-year uh, locked structures, uh, and many investors on the institutional side like the return potential of the 10-year structure, um, and many of the retail investors actually like the uh, liquidity and the yield that you can achieve with the public securities market. Um, one of the areas that I think is particularly interesting and is not present in many people's portfolios is broad infrastructure. As I look across retail portfolios in the U.S., I see that most investors have some allocation to real estate, or maybe they have had it in the past. It's a very widely held asset class. MLPs uh, gained a significant following over the last uh, 15 to 20 years. But global infrastructure more generally, which would include things like airports, seaports, toll roads, renewable power, electric utilities, et cetera, is less widely held. At Brookfield, we are particularly um, interested in advocating for infrastructure because we think it does great things for a portfolio. Um, if you think about the business model for infrastructure, it's actually very different than the business model of real estate or most other things you can invest in. Most businesses are driven by the economic cycle. Um, infrastructure, let me say this, thinking about supply, demand, and pricing, very different. Supply of infrastructure tends to be very limited. We may have uh, monopoly assets, such as the only water utility in town, the only airport in town, the only toll road from point A to point B. And those monopoly assets are terrific assets to have in your portfolio. If you think about demand for infrastructure services, it tends to be very, very steady. Um, from a utility perspective, we all wake up in the morning and turn on the lights, brush our teeth, check our iPhones 100 times a day, whether the economy is good or bad. Transportation infrastructure does tend to have some GDP sensitivity, but it tends to be, as a whole, infrastructure a very steady demand business. And the third uh, aspect here is pricing. Most things you can invest in, pricing is determined by the laws of supply and demand. Where supply and demand intersect determines the price. In infrastructure, because many of the assets are monopolies, price tends to be regulated. So the government has some control of the price. And what we see is that the price controls frequently have ties to inflation. So they escalate up as inflation moves up. And that actually creates a nice, predictable, stable income stream, which works very well in a closed-end fund structure. So limited supply, steady demand, and pricing linked to inflation 
are things that you can get with infrastructure that may be more difficult to find with other asset classes. Um, let me go to these two slides very quickly. Uh, one of the funds we have at Brookfield is an asset allocation closed-end fund. We invest in the three asset classes at the top of the slide, global equities, global, excuse me, global equities and global fixed income are my background universe. At the bottom of the slide are the things that we're really focused on, real asset equities, which here I represent by an equal weight blend of REIT equity, infrastructure equity, and MLP equity. We also invest in real asset high yield, which are the high yield bonds of real estate and infrastructure companies. And finally, mortgage-backed securities, which many of us remember the financial crisis, uh, are somewhat of a dirty word. But as you look at these asset classes, real asset equities, real asset high yield, and mortgage-backed securities, um, from a correlation perspective, the correlation of those asset classes with global equities and global fixed income is actually very attractive. And in particular, if you look at uh, mortgage-backed securities, which is the bottom row in the 15-year correlation and the far right column in the five-year correlation, the correlation to equities is extremely low. Most people's portfolios are dominated by equities, so having mortgage-backed securities is a great diversifier for your portfolio. Um, if we go to the next slide, I just want to show the uh, historical risk return of those three real asset classes. Um, at the background, we have the risk-free rate at the lower left, and there's a line that connects the risk-free rate with the uh, brown diamond for global equities, the MSCI World Index. That's the equity capital market line. In general, what you're trying to do to diversify your portfolio away from equities, to improve your portfolio over an equity-dominated portfolio, is to invest in asset classes that are above that equity capital market line. As you look at the colored symbols, mortgage-backed securities is the blue circle, real asset high yield is the orange diamond uh, triangle, and real asset equities is the blue square. All of these asset classes are above the equity capital market line on a 15-year basis. One thing that I think is very important is mortgage-backed securities. This 15-year period includes the financial crisis. Now, what I'm showing you here is non-agency mortgage-backed securities. So these are not government guaranteed, these are credit-focused mortgage-backed securities. These are the things that had problems in the financial crisis. Even including that horrific period, mortgage-backed securities are above the equity capital market line. Second point, looking at real asset equities, they have essentially the same volatility as global equities, but roughly four percentage points better return. Much of that excess return is simply from the excess yield that you get on real estate infrastructure and MLP equities. Excellent. Um, we also have Brian from Cone and Steers. Um, Cone and Steers obviously has an expertise in REITs and preferreds and a few other asset classes, and so I'm very glad to have him here. These are assets that you've seen more and more in people's portfolio, and with that, I'd like to turn it over to Brian. Great. Thanks, Alex, and uh, good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here this morning. I know many of you are investors of Cone and Steers, and for that, we thank you. Um, for those of you who may not be aware, um, familiar with our firm, we were founded back in 1986. We currently manage $62 billion in assets under management, 40 billion of which is in the REIT market, uh, and then we have another 15 billion or so in the preferred market. That makes us one of, if not the largest, uh, asset managers in those respective asset classes. And then we also have uh, capabilities in other forms of real assets, global listed infrastructure, midstream energy, natural resource equities. On the close-end side of our business, we currently manage a little over $9 billion 
uh, in closed-end fund assets as well. Uh, what Alex has really asked me to focus on today is both the REIT market and the preferred market. And of course, with everyone searching for income right now and really bond yields across the globe collapsing at this point, uh, that search for income is, is stronger than it certainly was last year, right? Uh, if you look at the 10-year German Bund, it's negative. If you look at the 10-year JGB, that's negative. And of course, the U.S. 10-year is now below 240. So where do you go for income? Well, you can look to these alternative sources of income. But with REITs and preferreds in particular, you're not only going to be able to generate high level of income, but you're going to be able to generate high levels of tax-advantaged income as well. Uh, with REITs, right now the asset class itself is yielding right around 4%. Okay? Uh, as a part of the tax reform bill in 2017, REITs may now deduct, or investors of REITs may now deduct 20% of the ordinary income portion of that dividend, okay? bringing your effective tax rate for the highest income earner down to about 29%. Within the preferred market, and keep in mind, this is based off of an average credit quality of a triple B. So we're talking about an investment grade universe. Right now, it's yielding 5.7%. The last three or four years now, our strategies, the income we've generated off of the preferred, 75% of that income has been treated as qualified dividend income. So again, high after-tax income in both of these asset classes. But importantly, both of them provide you with the opportunity to generate returns above and beyond just the income levels themselves. Uh, if you look at the REIT market right now, REITs are off to a very strong start this year. You're up over or right around 18% now uh, through last night's close. Why is that? Well, look at the fundamentals. Look at the economy. You've got 3.6% uh, unemployment rate. You've got 3.2% wage growth year over year, and you had a U.S. economy that grew 3.2% in the first quarter of this year. Those are the most important drivers of demand for commercial real estate. And that is coming at a time when supply, in aggregate, is in check. So the landlord's in a good position where they're able to grow that rent, okay? Uh, on top of that, with the Fed kind of hitting the pause button, that removes one of the pesky headwinds for this asset class. And in addition, when you think about other factors we're dealing with right now in the market, are we in a late cycle environment? What about the trade wars? REITs can provide some defensiveness during those types of periods. Uh, you think about the trade wars, you've seen the volatility in the equity market now the last couple of weeks. 82% of US REIT revenue comes from right here in the US, okay? Only 18% comes from outside the U.S. If you look at all the GIC sectors out there, there's only two that are lower, utilities and telecom. And you've seen this in the performance just here over the last couple of weeks. REITs have held up far better than equities. Looking at the preferred market, again, you have a chance for some price appreciation as well. Year-to-date, you're up over 9%. Okay? Yes, you're getting that high level of income, tax-advantaged income, but when you look at yield spreads, one could argue that preferreds offer the best relative value today. And in addition, because the primary issuers are banks, and we all know the regulatory environment around them, the bank quality has improved dramatically. Uh, and it's in our view that you're going to see more and more credit rating upgrades, 
which will likely lead to more spread compression, which will lead to better relative returns within the preferred market. So I'm happy to dive in those as we get to our questions. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and then finally, uh, at the end, we have uh, Jay Hatfield, who is the CEO of InfraCap. Um, InfraCap manages a number of different asset classes, but is probably uh, most prominent in MLPs. Uh, I know I said at the beginning of this presentation that over the past decade, each of these asset classes has found its way into uh, portfolios far and more often, but probably none more so than MLPs. Uh, and so with that, uh, Jay, if you could offer some insights into that market <coughs> and uh, how investors are using it. Well, um, so we manage three ETFs. Uh, AMZA is an MLP fund, and then we have two preferred stock funds, which is PFFA and PFFR. And we are on a panel this afternoon about MLPs, so we'll touch on that a little bit uh, today, but we'll also just um, talk a little bit about preferreds and then and try to be incremental to what's always already been discussed. <coughs> and we, like the other panel members, um, are, are uh, proponents of looking at um, alternative uh, uh, to uh, standard bond funds. So if you look at um, a total uh, bond fund like Vanguard, uh, total bond fund is one that we've used in trust accounts. They're only yielding about 2.9%, which, which isn't much above uh, money markets. <clears throat> the reason we like preferreds in particular is that uh, number one, they are listed and liquid, so in down markets, you can still have visibility into the markets where a lot of other bond investments are over the counter and their liquidity drops during market declines, when, particularly when Wall Street is pulling back from trading them. So they're listed and liquid. <clears throat> and one uh, major point I would make is when you're evaluating <clears throat> all investments, but particularly fixed income, is you need to look at their beta. <clears throat> so in other words, their correlation to the stock market. And then number two, their interest rate sensitivity. So um, preferreds, I think, are extremely interesting because they have a little bit of both of those risks. So just using round numbers, they're roughly 25% sensitive to the stock market and about the same to bonds. <clears throat> so what happens in normal markets, kind of like today, uh, today's market, is that they essentially do nothing. So when the stock market, like, uh, last week, stock market was sharply down, interest rates were rallying, uh, and preferreds are essentially flat. So that's a nice characteristic, but yet <clears throat> they do offer attractive spreads. Again, I would echo that they're arguably the most attractive. High yield is a little bit, uh, spreads are a little bit tighter than preferreds, but high yield bonds, keep in mind, are not listed, um, not liquid, and they're the senior securities of mostly private firms, whereas <laughs> preferred stocks are ones, are the junior securities of well-known firms like financials, but also REITs, uh, MLPs, and other credits that are, are um, their, their senior credit is always investment grade. Sometimes the junior preferreds are not. So it's a great way to access what we think are solid credits and um, get attractive income. The only other thing I would note about preferreds is the other risk that um, is not captured by beta or interest rate risk is call risk. So preferreds, the reason that, one of the reasons that issuers um, really like issuing preferreds, and uh, when I was an investment banker at Morgan Stanley, the companies loved it, because from their perspective, the uh, credit is cheap because they look at the value of the call option, whereas retail investors rarely do that. 
and that's fine when they're issued because they're callable in five years, so you can sort of ignore that. But then as they get seasoned, they often, so you're getting closer to the call date, and they often trade above par because ETFs are driving them higher. And so if you look at a lot of the uh, passive ETFs, they will hold many preferred securities that are trading above par but callable at par, so they have negative yield to calls. So they're fundamentally unattractive. So it's important to um, either manage the preferred yourself, which you can do. You can go to Barron's and go through the list, which I've done in my investing career, or to outsource that to an active manager so you don't end up um, buying these effectively um, investments that, are, that you should not be in or, or uninvestable securities where you have negative yield of calls. And then the other uh, point about active management and preferreds is that preferreds are attractive as long as they're issued by um, large cap or, and um, good credits. You don't want to be in preferreds of weak credits so because what happens is they get wiped out. Like Enron actually had um, mil billions of dollars of preferreds outstanding and you get zero in bankruptcy. So like if there was a high yield manager here, and it's true of convertibles as well, they would say, well, yes, but in bankruptcy, you know, you are senior credit and you're going to get some equity and, and that's better. So that is a good point. So, but the way to, to then trade preferreds is to stay on the higher quality preferreds and don't do any distressed preferreds. And so when we, um, we have an active preferred fund, so we only do credits that we're extremely comfortable with. And even with our uh, index product, we are the manager, so we will occasionally omit which we are doing right now because we have that flexibility uh, credits that we don't think are appropriate for the preferred stock structure because the, the default risk is too high. So that's something to consider. And like I said, you know, we're not against uh, individuals or brokers managing preferreds. It's just a lot of work and you have to do a lot of analysis and you have to look at yield to call and you have to stick it in your Bloomberg and, um, and it's arguable that you should sell it when they're at 26 and buy them when they're at 24. So it just takes a lot of day-to-day -day management. Um, that's excellent. Um, as I'm now going to sort of shift this conversation just a little bit and try and think of sort of a prototypical client uh, that we all have. Um, I know that at our firm, uh, the vast majority of people who come across our desk are somewhere in their mid-60s to early 70s. They're sort of at the beginning of their retirement phase, and they're trying to grapple with the different risks um, that are inherent when you become an income investor. You know, the accumulation phase is fairly easy. You save more for longer, and, and those are the two main rules you got to follow. Uh, but the decumulation phase, uh, where you can rely on these assets that you've accumulated over the course of a lifetime to support yourself, um, there's a lot of risks that come to bear, um, and many of these asset classes can help investors in that way. So my first question uh, to Barry um, is, among some of those risks, whether it's credit risk, interest rates, inflation, uh, as Jay touched on, default risk. Um, where do convertibles help an investor there? How should people think about using these in their portfolio? Uh, thanks, Alex. That's a very good question. Any way to get my slides back? Uh, I wasn't smart enough to go through the slides before. Uh, uh, go forward, please. Uh, um, this is the key one about the equity-like returns, but this doesn't obviously address risk. Uh, one more. Uh, Okay, this one uh, shows uh, the lower volatility, but the final one, there's only one more, I think uh, illustrates um, the consequences. The upside capture over 80% and uh, the downside suffering relative to the S&P uh, a little over 60%, so that there's an inherent uh, 
advantage in convertibles because of the asymmetry that is a consequence of the convertible structure. Uh, Bob Bush uh, mentioned some of this um, at the previous uh, panel. Uh, volatility uh, definitely uh, adds to the value of the embedded option in convertibles. Convertibles have relatively short uh, duration, so they don't have the same risk if interest rates uh, go up. Uh, there are all kinds of offsets uh, in uh, convertibles that uh, should be reassuring to retirees. And uh, uh, convertibles... Um, we have a convertible fund, uh, ticker AVK, and it's selling uh, as of yesterday at more than 11% uh, discount for a, um, a distribution yield of almost 10%, uh, buying uh, dollars for less than 90 cents on the dollar. And uh, it's been a good year for convertibles. Indeed, uh, our first quarter was absolutely spectacular, um, up 13% on AVK and NAV. And um, the premium, uh, uh, the discount, I'm sorry, contracted a little bit, uh, giving us a total return of 21%. And uh, again, the discount is back in double digits, at least it was as of yesterday. And uh, that's, uh, to me, it's, uh, it's very attractive. It's a good entry point. Um, I, my, my next question is, is actually for Larry. Um, Larry touched on the diversification benefits um, of including real assets in portfolios and, and had a very good slide to that in. Um, Larry, I was wondering if you could give uh, any of the investors in the room a, an idea of any of the trade-offs between the diversification benefit versus the risk and the volatility when you're putting a portfolio together and how do these interact? Okay. So a lot of people focus on correlations and focus on diversification. That's very important but we cannot forget that the most important thing is returns. If you have an uncorrelated asset class that has bad returns, it does not help your portfolio. So what we look for are asset classes that have both low correlation and good returns. Um, and as we think about the real asset spaces, uh, in particular real estate equities, infrastructure equities, and these fixed incomes, mortgage backs, and real asset high yield, they tend to do well in many different market environments when rates are rising or rates are falling. Uh, for example, in the equity spaces, um, real estate infrastructure and MLPs, these are equities, they're not fixed income. So when rates rise, these companies have the ability to grow their earnings and grow their dividends and they tend to perform well. Uh, and in fact, that group of companies, uh, REITs, infrastructure, equities, and MLP equities, tend to perform almost exactly in line with global equities in a rising interest rate environment. And that's surprising to many people. Um, but in contrast, in a declining interest rate environment is where the defensive characteristics of these equities really come into play. You know, I mentioned that infrastructure, monopoly assets, uh, real estate, generally five and 10 year leases. So very predictable, very defensive cash flows. So we focus on correlation as one way to achieve diversification, but we do not like investing in uncorrelated asset classes that have unattractive returns. Yeah. Um, 
for, for Brian, actually, you had mentioned in your, in your initial statement, um, you sort of touched on it, that, that REITs are now a GICS sector, right? So this was an, an, an area of the market that was highly underrepresented in people's uh, portfolios and now is now included in several passive benchmarks and you're starting to see a lot more flow into the asset class than you had had before. Mm -hmm. um, can you touch on some of the things that Conan Steers done, has done in regards to managing REIT portfolios and the like that you might not find in some of that passive product or some of the things that Conan Steers specifically brings to bear uh, in this asset class? Sure. So a couple of things on REITs becoming its own gig sector. You know, this happened a couple of years ago and there was this thought that uh, general equity managers would now start to invest more meaningfully in REITs and you wouldn't need your uh, specialized REIT manager anymore. The fact of the matter is the general equity managers remain underweight REITs as an asset class or as a sector. And in addition, if you look at the uh, managers that do own them, they're not very well diversified within the REIT space themselves. They'll typically own the largest office landlord or the largest apartment landlord, maybe Simon Property, the mall operator. Uh, and of course, you continue to see flows into the passive vehicles as well. But we've been able to generate significant alpha above and beyond uh, the index itself. And one of the things is, you ha always have um, great dispersion of returns by property type, okay? Right now, there's 15 different property types within the REIT universe. It's the traditional ones like office and healthcare, apartments, hotels, but then over time, you've seen self-storage, manufactured homes, single family for rent, data centers, cell towers, and interestingly enough, over the last 10 years, uh, it's these non-traditional property types that have outperformed the traditional areas. Uh, and if you look at our portfolio today, you're going to see significant overweights in a couple of areas. Uh, one would be really all forms of residential at this point. Apartments, manufactured homes, single family for rent, all three of those property types are benefiting from favorable demographic trends right now. Uh, in addition, we're overweight more of the tech-related areas, data centers, and cell towers. Of course, you have long-term secular growth stories there that are leading to much stronger year-over-year year NOI growth relative to the rest of the universe. And then we're also able to underweight the areas that are most problematic right now in our view. And it's probably not a surprise, but that would be around retail, okay? You've already seen over 5,000 store closures this year. The expectation is that number will be upwards of 9,500, 10,000 by the end of the year. So even the premier mall operators are not immune from this. So we are significantly underweight those property types which have underperformed REITs as a whole. So just us being uh, an active manager and able, able to pivot the portfolio uh, to the sectors that are doing well and underweighting the problem areas that's how we've been able to generate alpha. Oh, that's excellent. Um, and my, my final prepared question, and after this we will turn it over if we have any time, um, is for Jay, and, and just specifically within the areas of, of MLPs, and I know that there's a panel coming up later to discuss the topic, but um, there's been a sea change from the gold rush mentality that there was a few years ago when MLPs were really coming onto everyone's radar, and now there's a much larger differentiation between companies on the behalf of investors. Um, there's a much larger cohort of more stable companies that focus on free cash flow and the like. Um, 
Can you give a little bit of insight into what that transition has been like and how investors should think about MLPs today as opposed to what it maybe was three, four years ago? <clears throat> well, first of all, just to, to answer the question about building portfolios, we advise investors to try to target an overall portfolio of yield of, say, 4 to 6%. And so if you're going to do that, you need to have um, income from your equity portion, and you also need to have securities like preferreds and convertibles that offer yields um, higher than um, treasuries. And so within the equity portion, so when, you, when you're investing in equities, you need to look for growth. The thing um, to know about MLPs is that uh, the, the analogy has been used that they're like toll roads. And I never really liked that analogy for years, but then after the downturn, it started to make more sense to me. The problem is that when people think about toll roads, they, you know, they probably live near I-95, so they assume that's like the greatest business on the planet. But there are toll roads that go bankrupt. And the reason is, of course, they don't have the traffic. So that's what happened to MLPs over the last five years is that oil prices went from 100 to 20, and then the volumes dropped, and they slowly um, had uh, headwinds, and then they had to restructure, and they had to increase their coverage, and they had to decrease their leverage. So they're really a... Um, they had negative growth in distribution, so it's sort of the opposite of what you would look for. But now they've actually restructured. Uh, last year, the fundamentals were good, but they were still um, getting rid of their, what's called uh, IDRs or general partner interests. And this year, they've um, completely restructured. They are um, now growing their distributions by about 6% a year. They're yielding eight. And now, so you have a situation where, regardless of money flows, and by the way, MLPs, are not like REITs, um, they're actually completely excluded from all indices, so they are an orphaned asset class, so they arguably should offer outsiders returns, which they are, because if you take eight plus, say, 6% growth, that's a 14% total return expected, even with no um, gravitation towards the sector, which they're like to be, likely to be. So now, for the first time in five years since oil prices crashed, they're, they're um, attractive. And like I said, um, we think that the best way to build a portfolio is to have some uh, equity income, like REITs, um, MLPs, telecom, utilities, um, so that when you get to the fixed income side, you can have a little bit of the lower risk securities, like a, a Vanguard total bond fund that actually goes up when the market goes down, uh, have some convertibles, have some uh, preferreds, have a little bit of investment grade, all that's not very attractive. And then you get end up with this portfolio yield that's uh, four to six percent so that the income that you're generating can reduce your risk if you're particularly if you're retired and need to um, to uh, take cash out of your portfolio um, and so with that we have probably time for maybe one or two questions from the audience if this gentleman over here thank you thank you my questions for Brian um, could you compare or contrast the opportunities right now I know Cohen manages both a global REIT and a U.S. REIT, so between the two? Yeah, good question. So uh, I guess the best way to answer that is if you look at our global portfolios right now, we're essentially 53% invested in the U.S., 47% outside the U.S. Uh, given the strength of returns in the U.S. market right uh, year to date, the valuations aren't as attractive as what you'd find internationally. Uh, but you could also say that that's warranted, given that we have a more favorable economic environment, as I walk through, uh, and also, of course, a, an accommodative Fed at this point. So um, to us, you know, 
if you're thinking the next three to five years out, you know, maybe a global allocation is, is the best way to think of things. Um, but right now, given the, the more favorable fundamentals in the U.S., uh, that could be a, another thing to consider here. Well, that's excellent. Um, I made a solemn promise to keep this panel on time, and we have just hit our mark. But every single one of the presenters has told me that they will stick around for a couple of questions off the podium. And so if anybody has it, please uh, come on up. Thank you very much. Thank you.